as I often do, we will start with the question. When you hear the word shepherd, what do you think of? Maybe you think of the accounts of Jesus' birth, right? And little kind of cutesy pictures like that. The angels announce Jesus to the shepherds, right? Maybe you think of a dude that looks like this. Maybe you're like me and really had no idea what a shepherd does, so you just think of sheep, right? Those are Marty's, our friend Marty, who's usually here. Those are her sheep. She just got them. She's very proud of them. So what about this? What do you think of when I say the word host or hostess? My guess is probably one of these two ladies, right? That's Ina Garten, Barefoot Contessa, or maybe Martha, right? What if I were to ask you, what's the connection between a shepherd and a host? Okay, John, you're jumping ahead, buddy, but okay. <laughs> you're stealing my thunder, buddy. Um, but that's what we're gonna that's what we're gonna dig into today as we look at Psalm 23. We're gonna continue this teaching series that we've called "God is Not God's Name," and in Psalm 23 we learn that the Lord is my shepherd, and we're gonna unpack that a little bit. And hopefully, you guys will walk away today with something close to this as a big idea that the lavish presence and provision of the Lord cannot be taken, destroyed, or outdone cannot be taken, destroyed, or outdone. And so the Psalms are, there's 150 of them in the middle of the Bible. Uh, just if you let your Bible flop open, it will probably open to, uh, to a Psalm. Um, they were written by several different people, and a lot of them were written by King David. And it will be helpful as we dig into Psalm 23 to know a little bit about David. You'll see in old type on that handout that you have, there's a notation that says a psalm of David. Different psalms have different notations. Some of them have no notations, right? Some of them will say a psalm of David. Some of them will say a psalm of Asaph. Um, some of them will say the sons of Korah. Some of them will indicate that it's a song meant to be sung to a specific tune. Some of them are referred to as this thing called a miktam, which people think is a type of song, but aren't, aren't really sure. Some of them will indicate the occasion for the writing. This one just says a Psalm of David. So David is one of the more famous characters in the Bible. He was a shepherd as a boy. He used those skills um, to defeat Goliath. When he's trying to talk the king and letting him fight Goliath, he says, I defeated the lion, I defeated the bear, I can defeat the Philistine giant who is embarrassing your armies. Let me go, let me go fight him. And he does that. And then he goes on and David becomes so successful as the leader of the Israelite army that the king starts to get jealous of him. There are songs written about David. It says Saul, who was the king, killed his thousands, but David is ten thousands. Saul doesn't like that. Saul goes on a hunt and tries to kill David. Right? He chases those green lines. He chases David around the Judean wilderness. And David goes from cave to he meets up with some people, and he's got a band of like 600 guys with him who are loyal to him. And he's running all over the wilderness, literally running for his life, hiding in dark places, that kind of thing. Um, he, he eventually becomes king. And the Bible says of him that he's a man after God's own heart. David, however, is a very complicated man. 
David is also guilty of adultery, what many people would consider rape, and at the very least, conspiracy to commit murder. David's also full of repentance. When he's called out on those things, he throws himself at God's mercy and, and begs, his, begs his forgiveness, and God grants it to him. David's problems don't start, stop there. His family is a mess. One of his sons leads a mutiny against him, and David ends up running around the wilderness again, but this time he's chased by his favorite son, who is trying to overthrow him. And he finally quells all that, and we're left with this figure who has had these crazy experiences with God and these great victories on behalf of God and did these amazing God-honoring things, was literally ran for his life and knew what it meant to be tired and thirsty and alone and afraid and be king. So that's the man who wrote this psalm that we're, we're about to read. This is Psalm, psalm 23. Psalm of David, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his namesake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Right, pretty straightforward in that Psalm 23 is about the centrality of the Lord. It starts with, it goes to the Lord in the middle, and it ends with the Lord. And the Psalms are poetry, right? So we're going to look at this as a poem, and we're going to kind of analyze it as we would a piece of poetry. And the first thing that we notice is this idea of parallelism, and it's the use of repeated phrases or words. So verse 1, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. Last verse, house of the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. That's God's covenant name. In Hebrew, it's Yahweh. And if you were here with us over the summer and the spring, I taught on this name, right? I'm going to read this passage from Exodus when God talks about himself. This is God saying who he is. He passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, sin, and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generations. Those are all the self-name attributes of God, right? And when we see that capital L, capital O, all caps, that's what we're supposed to think of. We're supposed to think of his compassion and his grace abounding in love and faithfulness, his forgiving sins to the thousand. That's what we're supposed to think of. That's where David starts his psalm. That's where David ends his psalm. The next thing you'll notice, right, if you, you come down to where it says, even though I walk through the darkest valley, you are with me. There's a change in person. He goes from talking about God in the third person to a change talking about God in the second person. God is close to David. He's not far off like you would refer to somebody out there. He's right up close with David. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me. God is right there with him. So in the original language, Psalm 23 has 55 words in it. 26 words, and then in the very middle, 
the next three, you are with me. Another 26 words. The psalmist will use that device, the center of the psalm, to highlight their big idea. Right? I didn't originate the big idea thing. They, you know, way, way back. You are with me. Right? It's, it's just so, the, art, the artistry of this stuff is just so, so impactful. And we're going to spend the rest of our time in this idea of imagery. This psalm is filled with images. We're going to look at four, two explicit and, and two kind of implicit. And the first one is, is obvious, the shepherd. And in the ancient Near East, the word shepherd was almost always equated with king. Right? It was a different kind of king, though. It wasn't a despotic, tyrannical ruler. It was a king of, of strength and power, yet gentleness and care. Right? And I was trying to come up with the, the right kind of combination of people to describe like what, what that person right. So it would be like the resources of, of Warren Buffett and the toughness and tenacity of, right. if you're old enough, Arnold Schwarzenegger. If you're not old enough, David Goggins. Right? If, um, and then the compassion and the gentleness of Mr. Rogers. If you were to somehow mash all that stuff into one, one person, that's, um, that's kind of the shepherd king. That's, that's the image that this idea of the Lord is my shepherd is trying to, trying to por- portray. The other interesting thing is um, throughout, it's a, the idea of shepherd is a, a biblical theme from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. And the vast majority of the time, with, with the exception of three it's our shepherd, the shepherd of the people. Psalm 23, and in two other places, says, my shepherd, my shepherd. And it's meant to indicate the personal relationship that David has, that we can have with God. The closeness, the intimacy of that relationship. And David wanted to spell it out. So here's the thing. Sometimes we learn by looking at the opposite. I don't think the American church has a problem with my shepherd. I think they latch on to it to their detriment. I think we latch on to it to our detriment. Right? We, it's my Jesus, my quiet time, my worship preferences, my this, my that, my, 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 my. Relationship with Jesus is about living in his family, living in his community. If you were with us over the summer, I taught through this book called Live No Lies, and the author, John Mark Comer, he kind of, I'm not in this place, right? I'm not there, but hopefully maybe someday I will. He has a group of people who he allows to speak into his life in a communal sort of way. He won't spend more than $1,000 without talking to these people. It's not his wife. Like, his wife is in that, but there are people outside of his immediate family who will, he will seek their input and their guidance. Right? If we have a my shepherd, by definition, we are in a flock. Shepherd can't be a shepherd without a flock. If one of the sheep wanders off, the shepherd's going to go find it. The others are put at risk because the shepherd has gone off. Fortunately, that analogy falls apart with God because God could be with the wanderer and the flock at the same time. We need to think about what we think and say and do, the decisions that we make, and not just how they affect me and my, but how they affect the people around us. Right? We are part of a family. In the, in the imagery of this poem, we are part 
of a flock. And what we do affects other people. In this flock, other people are obligated to us, and we are obligated to them. So yes, we have a my shepherd, but we also have an our shepherd. Um, so the implicit thing, if there's a shepherd, there's a sheep, right? So the imagery of the sheep in this psalm is primarily that of need. The sheep needs to rest. He makes me lie down in green pastures. I know some of you are probably painfully too aware of this, but have you ever tried to put an overtired toddler to rest? Right? Amanda's got her hand up. It's like an adventure. And there are some, some people are really good at it, some people are not. But that's the kind of image here that the sheep needs to rest. And a sheep won't rest if they're annoyed, like if there are flies around, if they're afraid, if there's predators in the area. Right? It's the, the circumstances under which a sheep will rest are pretty, pretty tight. And it's the shepherd's job to provide for that rest. The shepherd, Jesus, the good shepherd, wants to provide for our rest. I used to, I used to wear my stress and my busyness as a badge of honor. I used to think unless I was busy all the time and I could look somebody in the eye and tell them that I was stressed out because I had so much to do that I, was, I would give Jesus a bad name, that I wasn't doing my job right. And nothing could have been further from the truth. Just think about our climate today, like the air, especially the area where we live. You tell somebody, oh, I'm, I'm, no, it's my Sabbath, I'm sorry. Like, what do you mean it's your Sabbath? Like, why just take 24 hours to just kind of be with God and to enjoy him and, and spend extra time with him? Like, that's like crazy talk to people. Whereas we, we should hear the ideas of busyness and stress as crazy talk, right? Not as, as like that badge of honor. And God wants to provide that rest for us. He makes us lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside still waters so he can refresh our souls. I know y'all's stories, most of them. I know your souls need a chance to catch their breath. I know mine does. And we can go to God and we can turn to him and we can ask for that. And if we follow him, he'll lead us into that. One of the other needs that a sheep has is that of protection. Right? David was writing from this place where he literally ran for his life. He literally ran. The, some of you are familiar with kind of the older version of this, even though I walk through the, shadow of, the valley of the shadow of death. Right? The translation that I read said, walk through the darkest valley. Scholars tell us that this is probably what that looked like. It's called a wadi. It's a dry riverbed. Sorry, is my fat head in the way? It's a dry riverbed. Some people think that um, the story of the Good Samaritan, like the traveler might have been traveling through one of these things. They were susceptible for flash floods. The, the water could just come from out of nowhere and take people out. They were a great place for thieves and robbers and other folks who were looking to do no good to hang out and uh, uh, ambush unsuspecting travelers. There were wild animals who, were, who would live and make their habitations in these places. As I, you know, I would try to relate to like my, the darkest valleys there, uh, I have this recurring stress stream 
right? My recurring stress dream is that I am, I'm in a city and it's dark and it's deserted and there's boarded up buildings all around and I'm being chased, right? There's people chasing me and I can, there's a highway in the distance and there's cars going by. So there's people, but they're not close enough to help. And for me, like that's what, like so the buildings rise up, they kind of make that, that valley. Um, that's kind of like the, the Hebrews calls it, you know, the shadow of death, to feel, to feel that intense. I don't know if you guys have that recurring stress dream, but like that for me, that's the idea that this kind of, kind of conjures, kind of conjures up. Um, the, so the, the sheep needs rest, the sheep needs protection, the sheep also needs sustenance, right? The green pastures are not just for rest, they're there to eat. The still waters are not just quiet and peaceful, but it provides for the thirst of the of the sheep. And the thing that's important about Jesus as our good shepherd is those supplies are not limited. Right? He has ample supplies of green pastures. He has ample supplies of water. He will always have, no matter how many people turn to him in need, no matter how many people turn to him, he always has more to give of himself and of his resources. All right, um, so we switch. Like, kind of, there's that there's that transition where we go. Um, I just jumped from shepherd to sheep, right? So we're gonna go back, and I'm gonna talk about the idea of the host. There's a transition where he's, he's after you know, even though I walk through the darkest valleys, I will fear no evil. Your rod and your staff, you comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil; my cup overflows. There's a transition in there where it goes from the shepherd and the sheep imagery to the host and the guest imagery. And I just, I'm, I was trying to, I'm, I'm reading through this and I'm kind of getting caught up in this idea of like, it's got, the, the imagery has to change. It can't be uh, still the shepherd and the sheep. I had this like far side cartoon looking idea of these sheep at a table, right? And that just wasn't, it wasn't working. And as I'm reading commentaries and stuff, Kevin's laughing. Um, there are some far sides with sheep sitting at a table, but none of them really worked. I was gonna, I was gonna put them up. Um, so this, uh, some scholars talk about this shift to this idea of host, and again, in the Judean wilderness, the the people were known. It was a Bedouin culture, so they were nomadic, right? And they lived in tents, and it was a dry, arid place. It wasn't safe to travel through, as we already talked about. But here's the thing about the Bedouin people, they their badge of honor was hospitality. Hospitality was on the same level as bravery on the battlefield, right? They held it in such high regard that people sought opportunity to be hospitable. They would always keep the flap of their tent open. They would stand outside the flap of their tent and wait for strangers to come by. And when a stranger came by into their tent, they would prepare a table before them. And when somebody enters your tent, they were probably traveling, right? So you would, I'm combining host and guest here, so stay with me. The host provides for the guest's needs. And in that culture, in that time, in that climate, it was water to drink. It was water to wash and cool your feet. It was food to, to restore you. And here's the biggest thing, I think, in terms of the host, is it was guaranteed protection. I always kind of struggled with what it meant that the, 
you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. When we think about this culture, if somebody is literally running for their life and they find somebody else, they're welcomed into their tent, they now have somebody else on their side with the guarantee that they're going to fight with them, they're going to protect them, they're going to be there for them and do everything they can to keep that harm at, at arm's length. So we have this, this Bedouin culture in which the host prides themselves on, on taking care of the weary traveler who has all of these needs. We have this shepherd right, who does everything that they can to lead, feed, guide, protect, mend when the, the, the sheep are broken. All we, and just like John said, right? What do they have in common? They take care of the sheep. They take care of the, the guests. And when we think about God as our shepherd, God as our host, again, those things are in unending, unending supply. So here, here's the question, right? All of that stuff being said, we are sheep, we are in need. I mean, maybe that's, we need to wrestle with that part, right? That we're, we're sheep or we're a traveler on the run or we're in a bad way. But why, why, with all that being said, with all of that being offered to us, why do we wander, right? Why do we wander away from the flock? Why do we wander away from this table that somebody has prepared for us where we can rest, where we can have food, where we can have good company, where we can feel safe? Why do we wander? Why do I wander away from that? Jesus himself gives us the answer. Very famously, he continues this shepherd theme in John chapter 10. This is Jesus talking. He says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. Can I have that next slide? The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. One more. Just as the father knows me and I know the father, I lay down my life for the sheep. So there's the, there's the thief who comes to take what belongs to the shepherd. There's the, um, the hired hand who is a cheap imitation of the shepherd who only has his best interest, their own best interest in mind. And then there's the wolf, right? That's anything that would do harm to the sheep. Sometimes that's our own choices, right? We're putting ourselves in the place of the sheep. Sometimes it's illness. Sometimes it's financial difficulty. Sometimes it's relational difficulty. Jesus is the answer to all of those because he, as our great shepherd, as our perfect host, he held nothing back. Not in his life, not in his death, not in his resurrection. We live in this already and not yet of being able to live in relationship with Jesus, but not experience all that it will be right when he returns. Jesus is greater than the thief, greater than the hired hand, and greater than the wolf. So David comes to a firsthand experiential knowledge of these things, right? Of, of God as shepherd, God as host. And these are the conclusions that he makes. That we are objects of the Lord's affection. 
you and I, those who look to Jesus for help, right, who we need him to be our host, we need him to be our shepherd, we are objects of his affection. And listen, here's the thing. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. The original language, that word follow, is pursue. Surely your goodness and love will pursue me. The goodness and love, the unlimited goodness and love of the God of the universe pursues us. He wants to be with us. He's glad to be with us, as we keep saying. We are made to worship. And surely I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. At, this, at the time of this writing, in order to worship God, you had to go before him. You had to go to where he was. Right? In, the, in the ancient Israelites, they had to go to the tabernacle. When the temple was built, they had to go to the, the temple. Now, because of what Jesus did, we don't have to do that. We can live, a new phrase that a friend just taught me, worship is the posture of our hearts before God. We can live in that worship. Right, so this idea of perpetual worship was common in the Near East, regardless of what God was being worshipped. There was a God called Marduk or Marduk, and some of his followers came up with this idea so they could worship all the time. They built little statues of themselves, and they put them in his temple, and they would go off and do their thing, and so, but they could still, I'm still worshiping, I'm, I'm still there in his temple. Right, we don't let yourself do that. Right? Don't create like this fake idea of worship. This little plastic image, we would make it in plastic, they probably did it in clay or whatever. This little image of yourself that you like re recalibrate your heart with the knowledge that God is our great shepherd. He is our perfect host. And allow yourself to really worship him all the time. Right? As you're driving carpool, as you're doing dishes, as you're closing a deal, as you're making a lesson plan. You can do those things walking with our perfect host and great shepherd in a way that says, God, I'm doing this for you. I want to shed a bright, clear light on you. I want people to look positively on you, right? Brian we're, was joking, not joking around. He was sharing a story with us right before service about how they were comparing, somebody said horror shows up and it's a Christian, right? It, horror shows up as a Christian and they were in a crowd watching a play, right? And everybody groaned in acknowledgement of like, oh yeah, that's right. Horror does often come as a Christian. Like talking about the duplicity and hypocrisy that Christians often bring. If we live with our hearts in a posture of worship towards God, that groan goes away, and it becomes, I want what they have. Perfect host and our, our shepherd who's willing to do anything for us, right? I wanna, we're going to transition now into a time, a time of communion, and I'm going to ask you to, um, we're going to do a little thought process, use your imaginations, whatever. Um, I want you to think about this table that I've been talking about, the table that a host would have prepared for his, for his guest, 
and I've tried to put this in our context and not the, the Bedouin ancient culture context. Um, however, you th I'm going to actually sit down and I'm going to walk us through this. I, don't, I want you guys to either look at that or I want you to close your eyes and just kind of walk through this with me. Right? After I guide us through this, um, this thought project, uh, Ben and Beth are going to teach us a new song. And if you guys are, are quick studies, I would encourage you to jump in and sing it with them. And then uh, they're going to kind of break in the middle of that song, and I'm going to get up and I'm going to lead us through a time of communion, and they're going to go back, and then I want all of us to enter into that song as best as we can. All right? So if you want to close your eyes, close your eyes. Um, if you want to look at the pictures, look at the pictures. <laughs> You are being welcomed to a table prepared for you. The sights are absolutely stunning. The decor, the candles, you hear the crackling of a roaring fire in the fireplace. The room is full of people, and yet at the same time, your host makes you feel like you are the only one there. You are free. You are free to not have to do or be anything except that Jesus created you to be. You have no baggage, no worries. You have nothing to prove, no one to impress. The host calls you to the table. There are seemingly endless amounts of food. Cold, clear water, big goblets of wine. You are seated in a comfortable chair with other guests. Some of those guests, you're really surprised to see them. And some, you're overjoyed at their presence. You are warm. You are safe. You are well-rested. You are in no rush. You have no place else to be. Your host stands at the head of the table and says, Welcome. I am so glad you are here. Enjoy this space which I created for you, which I created for us. <clears throat> 